Chapter Thirteen of Uganda's White Man of Work: A Story of Alexander M. McKay. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. Uganda's White Man of Work: A Story of Alexander M. McKay by Sophia Lyon Foz. Chapter Thirteen. Postlude. Did it pay? Alexander Mackay was only forty-one years of age when he was called to lay aside his life-work. When a young man, he might have turned a deaf ear to Stanley's urgent call from Central Africa, and remained in merry England, where fever is as little to be feared as our lions and rhinoceri. Had he done so, who knows but that he might have lived out a long life of twice forty-one years. He might have continued his work in Germany, perhaps coming to be a famous engineer or inventor. Having been offered a position with good opportunities for promotion in the service of the Imperial East Africa Company, he might have become a prosperous businessman. General Gordon had wanted him as an important officer in his army in Egypt. Had he accepted the offer, perhaps he might have ended his life as one of Great Britain's well-known commanders. Instead, he died in the prime of life, a missionary in remote Central Africa. Fourteen years in Africa had brought to Mr. Mackay the naughtiest of problems and hardships untold. During all this time luxury was far from him, and often he lacked even what we regard as common comforts. No mother or sister or wife was at his side to brighten his simple home. Late and early he toiled, oft-times at tasks for which he had no special liking. Many of those whom he had so patiently taught and whom he had come to love as his own brothers he saw sent to cruel torture and death. For months at a time he lived not knowing when a wicked monarch might call for his own life. His had not been the only promising life laid down in Uganda. In 1876, seven others beside Mackay had left their homes in answer to King Mutesa's plea. During the years since then, scores of other young men, and even some women, just as earnest and devoted to the work and to their lord as Mackay, have started for the shores of Victoria Lake. Some have died on the way, others have lived for only a short time in the land of their choice, and a few have survived to do many years of patient service. But has it all been worthwhile? Did it pay? It was a letter from a newspaper correspondent published in the London Telegraph that first led Christian teachers to give their lives for Uganda. Twenty-nine years later, another newspaper correspondent wrote a letter from Uganda's capital, and this was published in the London Times for August 11, 1904. Unlike Stanley, this second newspaper man had in a few days traveled by railroad from the east coast of Africa to Victoria Lake. On board a beautiful, modern lake steamer, he had sailed to Uganda's port. He found a people governed by a Christian king, whose noble prime minister was Apollo Kagwa, once persecuted and now one of the pillars of the Waganda Christian Church. He found a country under the protection of the English crown, ruled by just laws, and a nation wholly without slaves. He found that only a few of its citizens still brought their offerings to the heathen spirits, and those few seemed half ashamed to be thought of as believers in the wizards. Thousands of people, he found, belonged to the churches which had been organized all over the country. It was one day the privilege of this newspaper correspondent to see more than 5,000 of these Waganda Christians gathered at the capital. His letter tells the story of the great occasion. On the summit of Namirembe has stood for many years the principal Christian church of Uganda, a large building, the grass roof of which was supported by a very great forest of palm poles. This eventually became unsafe, 
and has lately been replaced by a more permanent and really beautiful building, which reflects great credit on Mr. Borup, an engineer missionary. He has taught the Waganda to make bricks, has instructed young men in carpentry and other handicrafts, and has superintended this their first building on a large scale. The walls and two rows of massive columns are built of sun-dried bricks, while those used for the foundations have been burnt in a kiln. The roof, neatly thatched with long grass, rises over the transepts into three peaks, but the most remarkable features in the building are the beautiful reed-work which covers the ceiling and the palm-stems that serve as beams and rafters. The great event in the capital recently has been the consecration of this cathedral by Bishop Tucker. At five in the morning, on the 21st of June, people were beginning to assemble in the open space around the church. The service was to begin at nine o'clock, but long before that hour every available space had been filled, and the great building was surrounded by a large crowd of disappointed but cheerful and orderly people who found it impossible to gain admission. The seats were a few reserved for Europeans under the central dome, and those kept for the clergy in the chancel. All the rest of the floor space, with the exception of the central aisle and well-kept passages to the different doorways, was completely covered by rows of Waganda seated on the ground, or on skins and mats which many had brought with them. No undue crowding had been allowed, but by this method of seating any given space will accommodate a considerable larger number of people than it takes where room has been found for chairs and benches. Looking down from the chancel, the eye wandered over a sea of dark but by no means unattractive faces, and one noticed a marked contrast between the two sides of the church, for to the right sat the men in their clean, long white robes, and to the left the women, clad for the most part in the rich brown bark cloth so characteristic of Uganda. King Daudi Chwa, Apollo Kwangwa, the Prime Minister and about fifty missionaries and native pastors from all parts of the kingdom, and a vast congregation of thirty-five hundred within the cathedral listened reverently through the entire services. The building of the cathedral had involved a considerable drain upon the resources of the people, and there still remained a debt of more than two thousand rupees, six hundred and fifty dollars. To meet this was the object of the collection taken up toward the end of the proceedings, and a most interesting part of the ceremony it proved to be. Quite a little army of men were employed going to and fro with large bags and claws, and they returned again and again to the chancel heavily laden with strings of cowrie shells, besides the more regular coinage introduced with British rule. These were received by the clergy in the basin-shaped baskets that figure largely in native life. Many brought offerings in kind, and the English section of the congregation did not repress their smiles when the first chicken was solemnly carried up the aisle and deposited at the foot of the table, followed almost immediately by a couple of goats, which showed a marked objection to being dragged back and removed by a side door. It then appeared that gifts were flowing in, not only from the congregation proper, but from the yet greater crowd which had failed to gain admission and thronged around the building outside all through the service. Load after load of offerings came through the doors, and many were the gifts that did not appear within. Others arrived too late for the occasion, and the amount of the collection went on growing for days afterwards. The latest figures I could obtain were as follows, 1,613 rupees, $538, including about 90,000 shells and 36 bullocks and cows, 23 goats, 31 fowls, and 154 eggs. The result of this collection more than wiped off the debt on the church. Altogether, the scene described was never to be forgotten by an English visitor. 
Less than thirty years ago, Stanley gave to the king of Uganda his first lesson in the truths of Christianity, and then appealed for missionaries to carry on the work. He lived to see a truly marvelous change effected by the preaching of the gospel, which is today being carried by native teachers and preachers far into the surrounding countries, and now, within a few weeks of his death, a gathering of over five thousand Waganda for the consecration of a cathedral in Mutesa's capital, witnesses to the force with which the Christian message can appeal to an intelligent people who have heard it for the first time in the present generation. Was it all worthwhile? Did it pay? Were the lives wasted or well invested which have made possible such changes in a country once heathen? Whosoever, said Jesus, would save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels shall save it. End of chapter 13 and end of Uganda's White Man of Work, a story of Alexander M. McKay by Sophia Lyon Foss.